On this week's 51%, we're highlighting women in the arts. We take a trip to New York's Hudson Valley to explore the work of one of the region's first professional female artists, and we also sit down with author Libby Sternberg to discuss her new book, Daisy, retelling an American classic. One of the things that is missing from The Great Gatsby really is Daisy's voice. You really don't know that much about her. I'm Jesse King. It's all up next on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on. I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh or Lita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jesse King. We've got a great lineup of stories and interviews for you today, centered around women in the arts. Starting with an artist who is in the midst of her first solo exhibition more than 100 years after her death. Caroline Klaus is believed by family and historians in New York's Hudson Valley to be one of the region's first professional female artists, capturing the wildlife and farm animals of rural New York. In a bid to bring her into the limelight, that work is now on display at the Locust Grove Estate in Poughkeepsie under the title Fertile Ground, the Animal Paintings of Caroline Klaus. Melody's worked on it the longest among the three of us. So mm-hmm. I've only done five years. So the show is set up by animal, sheep. We have some horses in the corners and then cows. I recently got the chance to tour the exhibit with its trio of dedicated curators. Bill Jeffway is the executive director of the Dutchess County Historical Society, which received most of the work for the project from descendants of Klaus family about 10 years ago. All in all, some 25 original oil paintings, dozens of sketches, and an abundance of other archival material from Klaus' life. Jeffway and co-curators Melody Moore and Caroline Kulp have been digging through that material for the past decade, having Klaus' paintings professionally restored and putting together her legacy piece by piece, sketch by sketch, letter by letter. You know what's interesting is we talk about her using names and language like she's just someone we know. As we were putting the catalog and other things together, you know, when when you're a straight art historian, you know, you would refer to her as Klaus's career or Klaus is this. And we're like, oh, we couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't break the habit. Bill and I just simply couldn't bring ourselves to talk of her about her as anything other than Caroline. Moore says Klaus's story started with tragedy. She was born to a wealthy family on Long Island in 1838, but shortly after her birth, her father decided to relocate the household to the remote wilderness of Sullivan County. Her mother died of consumption when Klaus was just two years old. And while Moore says William Klaus did his best to raise Caroline and her older sister Lydia, the task proved too difficult. The children were split up and sent to live with relatives in different parts of the country, Lydia to Virginia and Caroline to LaGrange in Dutchess County. So she gets lucky and she goes to a home where she's surrounded by a warm, nurturing, loving, educated enthusiastic, artistic, you know, she just lands in this place that suddenly can nurture all that she has inside of her. And so that's where, that's where she starts. Caroline Culp, who also works as an adjunct assistant professor of art at Poughkeepsie's Vassar College, says Klaus attended several schools and art classes in the Poughkeepsie area, even before Vassar's founding in 1861. On the walk to and from her LaGrange home, which her family lovingly called Heartsees, Klaus would often pass the animals that would become her subjects, herds of cows, sheep, and horses on acres of small farms. 
Culp says Clouds quickly found mentors in some of the Hudson River School artists of the mid-19th century, including French landscape painter Frederick Rondell. The new exhibition boasts some of Clouds' early graphite sketches, where she perfected her models from every angle. This top one is really beautifully done of six horse legs in different attitudes. Uh, and, and this is very much in the French style. We see a lot of Rondell's influence here. Um, in the lower left-hand corner, you can see that Klaus has dated her work with June 12th, 1862, and above it her initials. So she's claiming ownership of this sketch, but in the, the, the beautiful hatchwork here, and in the lovely modeling of the lines, there's a, a large influence of Frederick Rondell. Were there any other female artists around that time that she could have drawn inspiration from or learned from? Rosa Bonham? Yeah, Rosa Bonheur is, the most famous animal painter of the 19th century. She's a French artist, um, and she actually has a big exhibition up right now at the Musée d'Orsay in Paris. She was a hero as well as a contemporary of Caroline Claus. Um, but closer to home, the American genre painter Lily Martin Spencer was a female artist, mother of 13, um, and a, an incredibly financially successful woman artist who painted uh, domestic scenes and little genre scenes of domestic life. Lily Martin Spencer was active in the 1850s in Manhattan, but as she reached the end of her life in the 1860s and 70s, she moved to Poughkeepsie. And I'm not sure yet if they made contact, but I hope that they did. Our board president, Rob Doyle, who collects um, Hudson River art, gave a talk this past Sunday. His presentation was about all many, many other women artists of the period mm -hmm. that she might have known. I suspect many of them knew each other mm -hmm. because they would have been exhibiting at the National Academy and other places, mm -hmm. and it would have been a small world. Mm -hmm. It would have been a small world, and that I, I, I like to hope they were cheering each other on. Yeah. But there were certain things that was pointed out in the recent lecture, which had to do with, you know, some of the things they had in common, and many of them, I would say, probably the majority of them were not married, mm -hmm. weren't dealing with thirteen children. Mm -hmm. Most of them came from. Uh, well-educated and at least middle-income families. So they didn't have to force themselves to compete in the same way. They, they were well taken care of. Yeah, and they frequently come from artistic backgrounds too. So a woman artist kind of needs a start. She needs a leg up into this world in order to be successful. So many women artists throughout history, not just in the 19th century, are coming from you know, fathers who are professional artists, um, that that sort of thing. Brothers. Because mm -hmm. we talk about women artists, right, but Caroline Clouse in particular, you can tell through letters, wanted to be not just an artistic success, but a commercial success, or at least be recognized fairly in terms of value. So you see in the letters and exchanges, discussions of what she expects for the painting, the cost of the frame, the fee that will go to the gallery, and there's a great commercial sense to her work. So I think, you know, often women artists, they were allowed to draw politely in the parlor, but we're talking in this case of a greater ambition, greater skill, and a, and a commercial success. And then the 
letter that we quote from in Becoming an Artist has to do with her being represented to the very prestigious and influential gallery of Goupils in New York City. And her work was presented by a portrait artist named James Wright and wrote to her immediately after the meeting from New York City that the meeting went exceptionally well. They think the artist's work is exceptional and there's a bright future, fame and fortune. Uh, he said, but they suppose you are a gentleman and I did not undeceive them. And he said, uh, using the language at the time, he said that he would not do so until her reputation was firmly established. And of course, that happened relatively quickly. So these were the days when artists frequently signed with initials and she signed C.M. Clouds. And so she wasn't misleading anyone, but she wasn't necessarily correcting a misperception because that could have put her off track. This is my favorite. This is my favorite. Oh, that is gorgeous. The group says Klaus often received commissions for her work from friends and neighbors. In the main section of the gallery, you'll find incredibly warm and lifelike paintings of prized horses, flocks of sheep, and beloved backyards. Often the animals are front and center, and Culp says that's something that set her apart from her peers. While many artists from the Hudson River School dotted their landscapes with the occasional character, Klaus didn't see the animals as ornaments. She let them tell the story. The exhibit's largest painting, titled The Alarm, highlights a herd of startled cattle as they look around in different directions. It's only upon second glance that you really understand why. Moore actually had to point it out to me. But in the right-hand corner, Klaus hides a small train, rumbling in the distance. The arrival of the train and all the smoke and all the noise is not only disrupting to the you know, bucolic nature of the cows, but it's disrupting to nature, it's disrupting to the whole natural environment, and, and they're startled and they don't know quite what to make of it. And there is this tension going on in this period with the landscape artists of the Hudson River Valley who, who want to hold on to that nostalgic past but here we come, you know, the present is barreling down on us and even the cows hate it. And it's dated 1871, which was the year that the railroad started to go across Dutchess County. Prior to that, for 20 years, they ran parallel to the Hudson River and up and down to Albany. But this was when, she, at the time, she, the year she was painting it, the year that the railroad started to intrude on rural Dutchess County. In 1876, records show one of Clow's paintings was selected for exhibition in the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia, celebrating the 100th birthday of the United States. While Moore says there was a section of the event dedicated solely for women's crafts, Clow's work was accepted for the general exhibition, a major honor at the time that would have allowed millions of visitors to view her work. That painting, however, has slipped through the cracks of history. Moore says they haven't been able to find it. Part of their hope in spreading the word about Klaus' story is that additional paintings will come out of the woodwork. The subject that was exhibited at the Philadelphia Centennial was called Two Cattle at the Brook. And of course, we're hoping that by putting this exhibit together and getting the word out, that there will be other yeah. people who will say, I think I have a painting, C.M. Klaus. You know, I never knew who she was. And so we're hoping that many more surface and we're able to learn more about her. In her later years, Klaus was able to use her earnings to buy a residence in Florida, where she continued to paint animals and livestock. The recognition didn't last, however. Moore says the country's artistic tastes began to shift away from the romantic landscapes of the Hudson River School, and Klaus wasn't inclined to change with them. 
Like a lot of female artists, Clouds never married or had children. She said she was married to her easel. So when she died in 1904, Clouds was left relatively unknown. But shortly before her death, she returned to the home she grew up in, to Heartsease. It was at the estate that her family would rediscover her work, decades later. Culp points to one of Clouds' last paintings at the end of the gallery, depicting a flock of sheep nestled underneath the shade of a fallen tree. A single songbird rests on its trunk. Culp says Clouds named the painting Evensong. Which is a reference to the uh, evening church service in the Anglican tradition, where you'd have psalms and prayers at the end of the day. Mm. So it, it is a very poetic um, ending of mm. her life. You know, she knew that she was an old woman, um, and she was painting this evening scene. Fertile Ground, the Hudson Valley Animal Paintings of Caroline Klaus, is on view now and free to the public at the Locust Grove Estate in Poughkeepsie, New York, through December 30th. You can learn more about Klaus and see some of her work at the Dutchess County Historical Society's website. That's dchsny.org. Next guest is a longtime novelist with more than a dozen titles in women's contemporary fiction, from romance and mystery to historical fiction. In her latest novel, however, Libby Sternberg takes on one of America's classics, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. The original 1925 novel is a staple of many high school curriculums and provides a layered study of social class, gender, and the American dream all wrapped around the central struggle of millionaire Jay Gatsby obsessively trying to win back his former lover, the now-married socialite Daisy Buchanan. While Daisy is the tortured subject of not only Gatsby's desire, but of her adulterous husband Tom, Sternberg says very little is known about her. Her latest novel, the aptly titled Daisy, aims to remedy that. I loved The Great Gatsby, as millions of readers do. And one of the things that is missing from The Great Gatsby really is Daisy's voice. And which is odd to think of because here she is. Without Daisy, there is no story because, of course, it's about Jake Gatsby basically stalking her, you know, his obsessive love for her. And when they get together and reunite and rekindle this great love they had for each other. But you really don't know that much about her. You hear her articulate very witty, clever lines. She has some of the most memorable lines in the book. The one about, you always wait for the longest day of the year and then miss it. She wishes her daughter were a beautiful little fool. These are lines that I think a lot of people remember from Gatsby, and Daisy says them. But... That's kind of all we know about her, is that she's charming, she's witty, she's clever. The question that came up in my mind was, why? Why is she like that? I mean, clearly she's intelligent to come up with these clever lines, so why does she mask it with cleverness and with wit? Why doesn't she feel free to be herself? So that was the beginning of 
writing this story. So how would you characterize your Daisy? Who is she? Well, she, in my novel, she's a woman who's trying to figure out who she really is. In The Great Gatsby, of course, you see her have this wonderful love affair, this romantic love affair with Jay Gatsby. But, of course, she ends up staying with her husband at the end. There is that pesky plot point of Gatsby getting killed. And I know I'm not giving anything away. But would she have stayed with Tom if Jay had lived? Or would she have gone off with Gatsby? And what would that have entailed? What choices and decisions and preparation even would she have to put into that if she did decide to go off with him? So I wanted to explore that, her sort of awakening to who she is and how she is in charge of her own fate. What kind of factors do you think would have been playing on Daisy as a woman in the 1920s as she's trying to make this decision of who she is? Well, of course, back then, women's lives were far more restricted than they are today. So I do have her exploring how she's even going to, say, get finances together if she does decide to go off with Gatsby. How how is she going to get control of her money? Um, How does she do that? Another worry that she has is what happens to her daughter? Because you have to remember that back then in the 20s, I mean, it was in the 30s, actually, pretty sure it was the 30s, where you had the big custody case for Gloria Vanderbilt. And she was given over into the care of an aunt because her mother was portrayed as a loose woman. (laughs) So in Daisy, I have her worry about that. She does love her daughter. She is a good mother. And she needs to figure out a way that she can be with Pamela, her daughter. That would be a good trivia question. (laughs) What is the Buchanan daughter's name? She has to sort that out, how she can keep Pamela with her and also engage Jay Gatsby enough in loving her daughter as much as she loves her daughter. Do you feel that? Daisy loved Gatsby? I feel like in the original, it's always this sort of like, maybe, maybe not. In your eyes, do you think that she loved him? I agree with you that in Gatsby, it is, it's vague. (laughs) It's unclear. Does she really love him? Or is this a lark, this affair? Or is it a way to get back at her husband who's having an affair? Um, In my novel, she does love him, but that doesn't change the fact that she has to figure out if that love is enough to sustain her and her daughter, and will it work to be with him? Particularly when you think about the fact that if she did go off with him, regret the decision How would she get away from him? This man had already found her once. So she starts to realize that, that she has to think through long-term the consequences of going off with him. Jay obviously does not make it through the end of Gatsby. How 
tempted were you to give him and Daisy a happier ending? Or how true do you want to stay to the events of the original? When I first started writing the book, I didn't have a clear idea if they would end up happy together. I just had an idea of how I wanted to flesh out her character and present readers with the very real choices and hard decisions she would have to make. Um, so it wasn't until I got farther into the book that I started to realize where it needed to go, which I won't reveal. It does not end the way The Great Gatsby does. There are similarities. And and that was a challenge writing the book because whenever I strayed from the original, because I felt I had to, this is where Daisy would take the story, I felt guilty. <laughs> I felt guilty for straying from this classic. Well, I thought the way you went about it was pretty clever. I mean, you basically used the premise of Daisy saying, Nick Calloway is an unreliable narrator. Here's my side. I I wanted to acknowledge to the readers that, hey, this is going to (laughs) deviate slightly in places and maybe some major ways in others from the original story. And I have her at different points. Um, because she, of course, is the narrator in my book, um, telling readers that, hey, Nick didn't know what really happened at this point, but I was there at this particular moment, and I'll tell you what happened. I'd like to ask you some broader questions about writing in general and genre writing. Daisy isn't a romance, but you've written a number of romance novels, and romance is getting a bit of a resurgence on book recommendation videos nowadays, or like book talk and social media in general. I was wondering what your thoughts are on that and where do you see the future of the genre going? I'm actually glad you brought that up because I'm a big fan of the romance genre. I started in that field and I started in that field, as I said, because I thought it was easy to write. We should point out though, Daisy is not a romance at all. I have tremendous respect and admiration for romance novelists, and I don't think they get the respect that they deserve from the literary world the way other genre writers do. So you can see, for example, mystery and thriller writers getting a lot of respect and attention um, that you don't see the same level of that given to romance novelists. And Yes, you're right. The field is growing. I saw some statistics on it that romance sales have been growing. It makes up a huge portion of the fiction market. And it's a field dominated by women, women authors and women readers, which is another reason it bothers me that it doesn't get the same respect that other genres do. And I think part of that is because some people tend to think of it as they're just sexy books because they tend to think of it as erotica. It's not. There's a whole range of romances. A lot of them are what are called sweet romances with no sexuality at all in them. It's all about the the love relationship and the idea that you can find a love relationship that will lead to what is called the HEA, the happily ever after. Um, It does have a formula which I think imposes a discipline on its writers, and you really have to hone your craft to write romance. In fact, I tell people 
who are aspiring authors who've not gone through a writing course or don't have the money to spend on writing workshops, I tell them, learn to write romance. Use that as your writing school. Because of that formula, it forces you to keep characterizations and plots fresh. What is that formula then, if it's possible to do a brief overview? Think of the novel Jane Eyre, which is not a romance novel, but it has the romance formula. Usually starts with a meet cute. Jane meets Rochester, knocking him off of his horse um, when he's returning to Thornfield. You see the growing attraction between the hero and the heroine. Everybody sees it. The readers see it, except them. (laughs) They don't. And there are reasons they stay apart in Jane Eyre. It's uh, class structure. Then they do get together. And then there's what it's called the black moment. And of course, in Jane Eyre, there's that pesky wife in the attic. And it looks like they're never going to be together. Eventually, they do reunite, and then there's the happily ever after. It's hard to keep that fresh because readers have expectations. That formula is going to be followed. But they have to be believe after the Black moment that that couple won't stay together. They have to believe that. And writing that, making it believable, is very challenging. Well, Libby, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Lastly, what do you hope readers most take away from Daisy? I hope that readers see the challenges that a woman of that era faced and also that women today face being taken seriously by men and being allowed to be themselves without covering their intelligence with charm and I I really hope that readers, both men and women, come away from it with that message. Libby Sternberg is the author of more than a dozen romance, historical fiction, and mystery titles. She uses both the names Libby Sternberg and Libby Mallon. Her latest book, Daisy, a reimagining of The Great Gatsby, is a Book Life Quarter finalist. It's out now through Bancroft Press. You can learn more about Libby and her work at her website, LibbySternberg.com. We're going to leave you now with a conversation between our associate producer, Jody Cowan, and Sina Bazila-Hickey, the programming coordinator for the Sanctuary for Independent Media, a broadcasting and community engagement hub in Troy, New York. For many artists, the work of creating can require a lot of solitude. But for Bazila-Hickey, collaborative art is the norm. Coming from an extensive background in photography, documentary film, and textile work, Bazila Hickey now sees working in media, specifically radio, as a way to be both creative and reach out to others. Again, she spoke with our associate producer, Jody Cowan. I've always been a creative person, and I've always been an outspoken person trying to be a vessel of change in the communities that I live in. The U.S. wanted to invade Iraq. I took all my babysitting money, bought a camcorder. I'm not sure why, but I went down to Washington, D.C., and I started interviewing people about why they oppose the invasion of Iraq. That really set me on the path that is always that has since been my path, which is using creative means to address some environmental and social justice issues. I think the reason that I went down the path of documentary was Being an artist felt to me very isolating 
and very much about marketing yourself. And documentary studies was a way for me to still be creative, but to be collaborative, to expose myself to different perspectives, to educate myself on different issues, to work with other people in a way that was much more exciting to me. A lot of your work from photography to fashion is very visual. When did the medium of radio become a fixture in your world? Working in video, you do have audio as a big element of it. But I think it was only until I did Paper Girl again in 2020 in Brooklyn that we made a podcast. So I'd gotten this grant to do Paper Girl again. Paper Girl is this collection of art from from everyone around the world. There's no submission process. Everybody is able to contribute art. You showcase it, you roll it up, and you give it away for free in a surprise action that makes art accessible and interactive. And so I got this grant and interaction was like a big thing when COVID hit that was risky. And so we had to rethink how do we make this interactive project accessible to different communities that doesn't involve people coming into a room and touching art and sharing all this, you know, space. So we made it into a podcast and I worked with uh, my friend Annie Del Guero. Together we conceived this, these, uh, we pasted murals in uh, eight different locations around Brooklyn where you would then get a podcast and it was interviews and also talking about art and accessibility and also the different neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Yeah, that was the first time that I worked really on a podcast myself. One of your primary roles at the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, is as program coordinator for the community-based volunteer-led news hour Hudson Mohawk Magazine. How are you currently using radio to build on the theme of community connection that's prevalent in your other work? I get really excited about my work because if I'm interested about something, if I want to learn about something or advocate for something, this is such a great tool to do that. Coming back to Troy after, or the Capital Region after like 12 years, I had lost a lot of those connections. So it's a great way to connect with people, see what organizations are out there, what they're doing. And it's always also been a really great learning tool. And I think one of the best examples of that is, I'd say a few years ago, I knew very little about indigenous justice. And this radio work has given me a way to reach out to indigenous communities, to, you know, go out to Schoharie, where actually a land back effort just took place. Land has been returned to the Gununkahaga, to a group of Mohawk. And here locally in Troy, we have the Save 1011. So it's been a way for me to educate myself and to keep learning. I think sometimes there can be a distinction made between being considered a working artist and being an artist with a job. Do you identify with either label? Do what you need to do to do your artwork. I tend to gravitate more towards jobs like the sanctuary. You know, it's a fuzzy line between my personal life and the job that I do. And the radio pieces that I do are my art, but also I am doing art on the side. I've come in contact with other photographers and making room for that. You don't need to be actively working on something to be considered an artist. Also, when people say like, I'm not creative, problem solving is creative. We all are innately creative. If I was to leave the listeners with something, it's that art should be passed on and to be given to others to have access to it too. 
And so I do hope that other people are just inspired. Art can be whatever is around you, whatever you make of it. And I just hope that people are excited. That was Sina Pazila Hickey, the programming coordinator for the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. Their website is mediasanctuary.org. She was speaking with our associate producer, Jody Callen. That's a wrap on this week's 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio in Albany, New York. It's produced by me, Jesse King. Our associate producer is Jody Cowan. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. And our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. Thanks again to Libby Sternberg, Sina Bazila Hickey, and the folks at the Dutchess County Historical Society for joining us this week. To learn more about our guests and the topics discussed on this show, check us out at wamcpodcasts.org. There you can find episodes new and old and links to everything you need to know. We hope you'll join us next week. Until then, I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl, I was nobody else, I was so sure of myself I was fifteen and a half, he was a hollow laugh And I lost my cool somewhere along the way At night and down the hallway, I had to learn how to look away I lost my cool Sweet bells in little girl dreams. They said, Oh, I want a big life, not a house that could have been like. Where are you taking?